Prize. No Prize from God, Episode 1. I'm Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God is a series of conversations about radical theology with creative people whose belief systems are as diverse and complicated as their experience. As one of my favorite authors and theologians, Peter Rollins, explains in his book, The Idolatry of God, there's a type of salvation in our unknowing and dissatisfaction. Love is the crazy, mad, and perhaps ridiculous gesture of saying yes to life, of seeing it as worthy of our embrace and even worthy of our total sacrifice. Here, God is not approached as an object that we must love, but as a mystery present in the very act of love itself. So No Prize from God is about that continuing search, about the systems that work for some of us and the ones that don't. These are unfiltered conversations without an agenda. I'm not interested in debating these topics as much as I'm interested in learning where people are coming from, how they arrive there, and where that journey might lead. He gets to play music for a living. He's married to his high school sweetheart, has tons of fans, good-natured friends, and a burgeoning small business with his on-point pomade. Yet despite these gifts, Matty Mullins was hit with a supernatural reminder that fear, anxiousness, and suicidal thoughts can humble even the most steadfast of believers. I've had the chance to get to know Matty Mullins over a series of interviews, warp Tour hangouts, and club shows. He has a gentle laugh and a huge heart. Maddie's mom sat beside him in his Nashville studio as he and I talked about childhood, high school, getting married at a very young age, and our shared history of panic attacks, anxiety, and chronic depression. As frontman for Memphis Mayfire, one of the premier bands in the metalcore genre, and as a newly emerging pop rock solo artist in Christian contemporary music, Maddie encourages crowds in clubs, theaters, and at the Warp Tour with a mixture of relatable, personal confessions and faith-based positivity. Memphis Mayfire's 2014 album, Unconditional, debuted at number four on the Billboard 200, and its follow-up, This Light I Hold, has broken through to commercial rock radio. In recent months, they've dropped three new music videos from the album, including That's Just Life. Mullins honors his gift, offering fellowship and cathartic expression to a diverse audience with his abrasive and loud metalcore band, while equally pouring passion into the more stunningly spirit-filled anthems of a different sort that color his solo work. 
His second solo album, Unstoppable, was released by BC Recordings earlier this year. So here is that conversation with Manny Mullins. I was born in Spokane, Washington. Mom, what hospital was it? Was it Sacred Heart or Valley General? Oh, I thought it was either Sacred Heart or Deaconess. Valley General Hospital. Yeah, man, Spokane, Washington, born and raised. I'm the youngest of four, but I have uh, two sisters and a brother. And my brother actually played music when I was growing up, and so he was a big part of, of why I got into it in the first place. Who were some of the first bands that you heard that really – started you on this path to where music would be such an important part of your life? Yeah, it had to be my brother, you know, j just being really young and him performing and me going and watching his shows locally. There was this Christian festival up in the Northwest. It was called Jesus Northwest. And, you know, I, I, when I was young, I, I didn't want anything to do with like, I, I didn't, when, when my mom said, do you want to go to Jesus Northwest with me? I was thinking it was going to be some like conference that was going to be super boring for me. And I, so I didn't want to do it, but I, she ended up dragging me there, and that's the first time that I saw Jars of Clay, which was like the like the first big, I guess, live production experience that I'd, I'd ever seen. It was awesome. It was right when like Flood, that song that they were doing, was popping. And so, you know, heavily raised on Christian music, and that was a big influence in my life. It still is. What's Jars of Clay? That's uh, that's that's music. It's a rock band. Oh it's yeah. It's what are they saying? It's Christian rock. It's probably why you haven't. Oh, come on. I can't wait. Party. Jars of Clay, people make fun, but they rock, man. They rock. It's music with a message. What's the message? Kill yourself? Check it out. Alright, let's stop. Come on, man. Right, I'm going to tuck and roll out of the car if you keep that on. You know, coming from the family that I came from, my dad was a pastor. My mom's obviously a, a woman of God, and, and so I, I was only allowed to listen to certain types of music, you know, whatever they thought wouldn't corrupt me. You know what I mean? It, it was all that same thing. But I mean, there are so many different types of music in, in that realm. You know, there was like, you know, bands like MXPX that were on the, you know, punk rock stage at Creation Fest was one of the festivals that I went to. Responsibility, what's that? I don't want to think about it. We'd be better off without it. Do you remember about what age you were able to begin to grasp, you know, these bigger questions and concepts and issues that faith seeks to address? 
I'm 28 now, so I'd say probably 27 is when I could really grasp my faith. <laughs> I'm kidding. Man, I, I do. I learn so much about it every day, what, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It's so – it's crazy. It's like when you're raised in, in a faith-based household, so much of your relationship with God is your parents' relationship with God. And you, you just kind of adapt to whatever their beliefs are and, and kind of influence those in, in your own life and, and you just are like well this is what my mom and dad believe so this is what I believe kind of thing and it's not until you you know I guess like late late high school years and and early adult years where you're kind of getting into the swing of what it's like to be an adult where you realize like oh man like my relationship with God has to be my relationship with God it can't be it can't be just what my parents told me it has to be genuine and authentic otherwise I'm just this is just like religion and it's not a relationship you know I think that the the biggest step that I took towards knowing Jesus more was, you know, just a few years ago, three, three-ish years ago, four maybe, when I started struggling with anxiety and depression a lot. You know, it was the first time that I felt like I actually had to reach out. You know, I had thoughts of suicide, and I was so consumed by these feelings that I didn't understand, and I didn't know where they were coming from. And it was the first time in my life when I actually felt like I had to to, to reach out and, and not just call my dad and be like, hey, dad, what does the Bible say about this? It was like I was desperate. I was I needed to figure out what it meant to me. And so, you know, I was living in Seattle at the time, and I got involved with a church called the City Church. And Judah Smith is the pastor there. Justin Bieber's pastor has just released a brand new book called Jesus Is, which is already topping the charts. His name is Judah Smith, and the pastor is with me tonight. And the way that he preaches is just so relevant to, to my life and, and to the generation that I'm a part of that um, in that season, I found myself learning more about Scripture and learning more about Jesus than I ever had my entire childhood because it wasn't something I was forced to learn. It was something that I chose to learn. I remember reading an article on the MTV News website uh, sometime late last year. I think it was shortly after the election about City Church and Judah. I believe the article called it the quote, hippest church in LA and it was talking a lot about the celebrity connections there um, you know Justin Bieber Selena Gomez the Kardashians Tim Tebow all these different famous people that attend that church I'm curious did you have any experience or any kind of run-ins with that whole celebrity culture aspect of City Church and also what do you think it is about places like City Church uh, that are so appealing to kind of that segment of the population or that generation, so to speak. Well, you know, um, I, I wasn't involved in any of that because, you know, I, I was attending City Church right when Judah was about to start going to L.A. and preach. He, they started a campus in Guadalajara, Mexico, and then also in L.A. around the same time. And that was right at the time that I was leaving to move to Nashville. So, you know, when he I know when he preaches in L.A., like a lot of times he'll preach at like hotels that are in like Beverly Hills and stuff like that. And so a lot of these celebrities that have maybe been intimidated by the church or or have had no interest in the church. They hear about this pastor that's like so eccentric and so full of life. And even if you don't know anything about Christianity or don't even have a desire to know Jesus, going and watching Judah speak is incredible. And it's all so biblically sound and so true, um, but it's just so much easier to, to relate with um, than a lot of pastors can preach. I think that Carl Lentz is another one of those Kind of celebrity pastors or whatever as the lead pastor at hillsong church new york city an 8,000 member community in the heart of manhattan carl lentz believes his come as you are approach to faith 
has tapped into a generation he says feels disenfranchised by religion. And I don't think that that they have that following just because they can appeal to celebrities. I think that they have that following because they can they appeal to everyone. That they that there's not a person I've ever met in my life from you know the 13 year old uh, girl that's at a Memphis Mayfire show to my you know 80 year old grandparents that wouldn't enjoy a sermon by by these pastors. And I think that they just are doing such a really great job. Um, so I don't know, man. It, uh, I think that the whole celebrity thing and everything is, um, I think it's cool. I think Judah just loves people so much that um, he wants to invest in anyone and everyone and not just the people of Seattle. So he travels a lot. There's these like mega church pastors that will get up and they'll just talk about love and they'll put love on a pedestal instead of truth. And, and it has to be, love and truth have to be equal parts. I, I think that Judah and Carl, I think that those guys really get it. They're not just preaching about love and making people feel good and then sending them on their way. They're talking about real real scripture and real life and real love and real truth and how they all come together. You mentioned that growing up in a Christian household, you were somewhat limited in what you were allowed to be exposed to in terms of music. So where did heavy music enter into the picture? When did you start listening to metal and hardcore? Well, you know, I guess it, it was really like the the tooth and nail solid state era that introduced me to heavy music. You know, I started out by my friend Will invited me to a show at this venue in Spokane called the Detour. He was like, "Hey man, you know, like there's this band called Showbread that's coming to town." I was like, "Showbread? That's a weird name." You know, I was like, "But you know, I'll go check it out." And and ha- having not been really interested in in that whole realm yet, and then going to that show and just feeling the energy and the passion and seeing the, the crowd and how they reacted to that kind of music. It was so magnetic for me. I was instantly drawn to it and I instantly wanted to, you know, stop writing pop and rock music and, and, and focus on heavy music that brought me in, in, in that way. But then having been introduced to heavy music that way, then I was starting to, to look at other bands that were not in the Christian realm that were the bands that influenced these bands, you know? And so, um, you know, I mean, the the bands that were really influential to me in that in that time frame were like, you know, Blindside and Beloved, um, and I guess those bands were all still, I guess, considered part of the the whole Christian realm or whatever. Um, but it just opens your eyes to, to to all all this different type of types of music and and different genres and where and 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 that aren't just in the Christian realm. And then obviously, like the the festivals that that I've played with Memphis Mayfire, you know, we've gone and played in Soundwave and and play download and stuff, you just have this like overwhelming amount of, of music in those days where you just learn so much. And, and having come from a Christian household and not being introduced to a lot of these, you know, just like massive metal bands and stuff when I was younger, seeing them for the first time in that way was, is insane. So um, I guess I'm, I'm always learning more about, about all that stuff. Speaking of learning, what was high school like for you? It was a weird experience for me, dude. I, I didn't have a whole lot of friends at high school, but I had a huge community of friends outside of high school, you know, um, people that lived in the neighborhood that my dad lived in or or lived in the neighborhood where, where my mom lived in just, um, I started bands with people and I would go and skate with people that, that weren't a part of my high school. So high school was kind of, kind of felt lonely, but I met my wife, you know, freshman year at high school. And so, um, it was this really weird 
thing where I, I was super unpopular. I was, you know, a lot of, I would wear, you know, girls jeans and I had like emo hair and everything. And so, but my wife has always been, she like super beautiful and popular and kind of in, in, in with all the, like the cheerleaders and the jocks and stuff like that. So when she chose to date me, like she lost a, a ton of her friends because they were like, what are you doing with him? You know, like he's an outcast. So I had this weird experience of like not being popular, but also like dating and, and, and kind of courting this, this girl that was really popular. So it was like a weird dynamic. High school itself wasn't awesome for me. Uh, but obviously meeting my wife there was incredible. And the friends that I had outside of high school during the time that I was in high school was also really special to me. And, um, so I don't know. It, it, I feel like my that that time frame of my life was different than a lot of people's would be. I I, I was never popular in 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 like the the popular group, but like I got the opportunity to play music with guys that were a lot older than me and a lot more experienced than than I was at that age. And so in in the music scene in Spokane, I knew so many people, and so many people were, I, I guess, fans of of the bands that I would start and the bands that I would be in. So. So I just never cared. I never, I never had any desire to be known in that high school realm because I was gaining presence and uh, a following in this other realm at the same time. So it was, it was very odd. And I, I was traveling and playing music at that age too. You know, we'd go and we'd play Seattle and we played Portland and we played um, Salt Lake City and and we'd come back. And so like when I wasn't at school during the weekdays on the weekends, I'd be out playing music all all throughout the Northwest. And so um, it's not like I was like some crazy, massive, you know, like techno DJ or dubstep DJ or something in high school that broke out and made millions while I was in high school. It's just that I had this other group that was so much more important to me than trying to be popular at high school. So I I never felt like alone or like an outcast because I was so accepted in this other realm. But, you know, my eight hours a day at school was was painful. I can certainly relate to some of what you're talking about because uh, my own high school experience, I didn't have a whole bunch of friends in school. I didn't really relate to sports culture, jock culture, a lot of things that were popular in the late 80s and early 90s in Southport, Indiana. But when I discovered the hardcore scene and the punk scene in particular, you know, I suddenly had this community of friends outside of school uh, through fanzines and shows and playing in bands and that sort of thing. And, you know, suddenly I knew people as far away as louisville and chicago and all these other sort of places to where i had a pretty wide friend group and i had some very close friends but in high school in particular in the day-to-day existence of school there really weren't too many people right right and and, i mean i guess it might be that way for for a lot of kids that are in the scene that come up in the scene they might feel like total outcasts at school but then they can go to a show you know like a memphis mayfire show and feel like they're in a place where they're accepted and so they have this this whole other people group that they feel like they fit in with outside of school. Um, but I mean like the, the kids that, that were playing music w- at my high school, like th- that group of people, I didn't fit in with that group of people either because they were like the indie kids, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like trying to chase the whole like metalcore solid, solid state thing when everyone at my high school was listening to like these arms are snakes and, and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's weird. It's weird to look back on that. It feels like a whole nother lifetime, you know, cause I've been married for over 10 years and haven't lived in Spokane for, you know, probably eight years, you know? And so um, it's weird looking back and talking about it. I know you were in a handful of bands in high school, uh, which which were some of the more serious bands, uh, for lack of a better phrase. 
and how did you find people to be in bands with and also how did you know that you wanted to be the front man versus the drummer or the guitar player or the tour manager i mean mom what was i like maybe when nate when nate had that band with, with john thorpe and everything and i went out and I, I i screamed on stage literally i must have been six or seven years old tops i mean dude like my first live performance experience <laughs> my brother was like okay we're just gonna play this like I mean, it was like this kind of like Nirvana-esque, like just like kind of thrashy riff. And he was like, just come up and scream, Jesus is cool. And he's in my head over and over and over again. <laughs> and so, um, and I did. And, and it, there was probably, you know, 50 people at the show or something like that. But I just came and I was like, Jesus is cool. And he's in my head. Jesus is cool. And he's in my head. You know, like they were this like Christian kind of like grunge thing. And it was so, it's so, it's so lame. Looking back on it, it's so funny. But I mean, like that was, that was my first experience like performing ever. And I don't ever remember wanting to be a, a guitar player or a bassist or a drummer or anything like that. It was always a front man thing for me. And I think probably because DC Talk had so much influence in my life at, at that age that like that band was just made up as, of three front men. You know what I mean? So everything that I saw and everything that I loved was 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 that. And that so that's what I wanted to be. So my dad, he lived um, in a different neighborhood and was um, after my, my parents split up he had a neighbor like just across the street um, who had a, a son that was just a little bit older than me and his name was Will. And we started hanging out because we were both skating together. We'd go out and we would skate. And then one day he told me, he's like, dude, my dad plays in a band. You want to see his band room? And I was like, yeah. So we went out back and they had like a shed that had been converted into this super rad, like state of the art band room with like a PA and like all these mics and a drum kit just at our disposal. And I was like, dude, why aren't we, why don't we start a band? And he was like, okay, let's do it. So he decided that he was going to uh, play guitar and that I would sing. And so we had to like find a drummer. And uh, so we, we basically just reached out to, to any, any kid in the neighborhood that, that thought that they could play an instrument or we would bring our friends in that we wanted to hang out with and be like, can you learn how to play bass? You know? Um, and so we started jamming and I mean, we had all these different band names and different phases and there was a local band in Spokane. Will and I had been playing together for about three years at this point there's a local band in Spokane called Buddy Ruckus they were always kind of the, the hometown heroes and we were so into that band that we thought they were so cutting edge because we had never at that point we had never been introduced to like the the Juliana theory or like any of these bands that they were copying so we didn't we just thought that they were these ideas were just like it was the sweetest thing ever we would go out and watch them play and just be super inspired. And then one, and, and so we found out what church those guys went to. So we were like, dude, we got to go to the same church as those guys. And it was called Calvary Chapel. And the singer of that band, his his dad was the was the pastor of Calvary Chapel. So we went and we started to try to hang out with them and everything. And I think we got a couple of them to come out to a show once. And then out of nowhere, the singer of that band started the band called Telecast. And I will never leave him Leave you waiting round Cause I'm the one who's been waiting For you to turn around For you to turn around
the singer of Buddy Ruckus, him and Josh White, like they, they basically they brought Josh White on staff to be the worship pastor at Calvary Chapel. So Brian and Josh started Telecast with like Adam and Aaron Breeden, which were some other musicians from from my hometown. And so when that happened, Buddy Ruckus dissolved. So their um, bass player, Steve Westcott, could also play guitar. And we were talking to him at church. We we're like, hey, man, if you want to like start a band with us, we would be honored. He's like, you know what, man? Like, why not? So we were like, okay, awesome. So he's like, how about I come over and jam tomorrow? And dude, we were kids. Me and Steve have to be 10 years apart in age. I mean, at least eight, eight to 10 years in, apart. And so I was like starstruck and just so excited. And he came over and he brought one of his like favorite drummers from the church to come and play with us. And he had like these giant cymbals that were just sounded so heavy. And it was like our first experience playing with anybody that had that kind of experience. And I mean, it, it just started it, from that point on. We, we were a band and we were a band with, with the guys that we idolized. We called the band, I think we called the band Eloy, which um, is, I think, Aramaic for my God. We started playing a bunch of local shows and gained some traction. Everyone was just so interested in, in these kids that Steve Westcott had brought on board to play music with. And so we, we started doing that, and we, he, we took his van. We took his van all over the Northwest and played shows and eventually um, – kind of changed our style a little bit in, into like this, we started to sound like the, I guess like a version of Amberlynn, um, and we changed our band name to the Monroe. started to gain like a, a really big fan base in like Portland and Salt Lake. And um, it was crazy, man. I mean, I must have been, you know, 16 and and play, going down and playing on the weekends for, you know, six, seven hundred people. <laughs> you know, it was like insane. And actually, it was one of those shows with the Monroe at Rock and Roll Pizza in Portland where I proposed to, to Brittany, my, my now wife of, of 10 years. You know, um, we played together for a long time, and naturally it just sort of started to, to to die down a little bit, and I really wanted to get into heavier music. That was kind of the time when when I got introduced to, like, you know, showbread and, and, and getting getting to see all these bands play that weren't from Spokane. So much of what I knew was just in Spokane, just like the local scene. That was, in in my mind, those were the only bands in the world that, that played this this kind of music. And then, you know, showbread and embodiment and you know, Blindside and Beloved, all these bands started coming to town. And I was like, man, I really want to, I, I want to play something heavier. So I started this band called Nights in Fire. You want to fight! 
had this guy, Christian Hendricks, who had been a, kind of a staple in, in the local scene. He came in and helped us write this pretty rad record, dude. I mean, like, for how old I was, the record was banging. It, the record was called Dark and Desperate Times, and if you go and you look that up, you might be able to find it. You know, I, I was learning how to scream, so it kind of just sounded like I was barking. But other than that, the record was pretty sweet. Um, and Christian eventually ended up leaving the band, and we recruited, um, I would say, Spokane's biggest rock star ever, other than Miles Kennedy. Obviously, Miles Kennedy became just this massive thing. But this guy named George Silva, who played in a band called um, Five Foot Thick, and then also started a band called Takeover that was pretty big in Spokane. He he didn't have anything going on at the time, so we brought him into the picture, and we started touring really hard and just in the Northwest, and, and then that project started to gain some traction. And right when we were about to start showcasing for some labels, I got this – I had these two friends in Spokane that had moved away for a little while. They moved to L.A., and they came back, and they were like, Matt, we have to take you out for lunch. We need to talk to you. I was like, okay, cool. And they're like, listen, we know you have what it takes to to do music for a living. And now that we've seen LA and we've been to all these places, like we want to remove the veil from your eyes. He's like, Spokane doesn't have anything to offer. He's like, if you stay in this city and you keep trying to 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 start bands that are gonna go somewhere from this city, he's like, you're you're never gonna get anywhere. He's like, there's this band on MySpace. They're called Memphis May Fire. And they've only been around for like a year, but they're like a real legit U.S. touring band, and they just lost their singer. They're doing auditions over MySpace, and I was like, okay. And this at this point, you know, Nights and Fire, I thought it was, I thought we were just killing it, and that was that was gonna last forever. But I decided to take this audition instrumental and and go into the studio and write and record something to it. So I sent it to Kellen over MySpace, and at that point, I think they had done over like 180 auditions none of which they, they they were happy with. And I think he was about to call it quits. This was probably late 2007, early, or, yeah, early 2008. So here's what's crazy about the timeline. Around 2007, okay, so Zach Hodges, who was one of the original members of Telecast, he also uh, produced the first Demon Hunter album. And of course, as you know, I've, you know, managed the band Demon Hunter for a number of years now. Zach ended up living in Southern California, not far from where I was living. And he worked at a church called Revival, where Josh White from Telecast was the worship leader. And this would be around, yeah, 2007, 2008. Uh, my management company was actually sharing office space at the time with Face Down Records. And Josh uh, was the worship leader at this church just right down the street and he would actually come by the face down office from time to time he and i ended up becoming friendly and after a while we started working together i actually was the manager for telecast on their third album quiet revolution which came out on bc recordings uh, your record label oh my god dude it is unreal how many ways you and i are connected it's so crazy josh was into heavy music and and it just didn't work for him so he jumped ship and, and started a worship thing, right? That was kind of the story. Yeah, Josh was actually in a band called Man Ray, who was kind of a loud alternative rock band with goth overtones, who actually put out a major label record on uh, Polydor Records. Oh, man, yeah, so Face Down was a really big deal to me growing up in, in the Northwest. So Face Down was, was one of the labels that we were in contact with. Who was who it? Last name was Dunn, I think. Jason Dunn. 
Jason and Virginia Dunn, the husband and wife who own Face Down Records. Right, and and then right, and and we were in contact with with that dude about about coming down and, and showcasing when I was in Nice and Fire. So, yeah, I mean, after I sent that audition to Kellen, he was so intrigued and 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 it felt like such a perfect fit. He was like, "Can you fly down here?" I was like, "Yeah." So, so I flew down and and we jammed in his living room, his dad's living room um around like all the, all these like plants that he like he had this like plant room it was really awkward um but we i flew down and we jammed through two songs and they were like if you if you want the spot you got it and we'd like to play our first show in two weeks and it, i mean i was still living in spokane so i was like uh so I, I flew back my wife and i packed up my roommate and his girlfriend packed up and we just moved to dallas together with no plans my wife was working for Nordstrom at the time, so luckily she was able to transfer, and that gave us the ability to sustain life when we got to Dallas. But, I mean, going from Spokane's, the only place I'd ever lived, to Dallas, it was like such a crazy culture shock. And going from being in a band with all of your friends to suddenly being in a band with a bunch of people who are strangers. Like dudes I did not know, and, and in a lot of ways that I didn't click with, you know what I mean? Because I just didn't, I just came from such a different world, you know? Like, my attitude being from the Northwest came off as like really offensive and kind of just just like cold to them but i was like well this is this is just this is how we talk this is how we this is how i deal with people you know i had to learn so much like living in the south about manners and about you know like uh southern hospitality that just doesn't even exist in the northwest you know what i mean um just to be able to fit in in texas but yeah i mean after that first audition or whatever i had to go and i had to take these guys that had invested so much time and so much money into this band that we were trying to build in spokane and just be like, hey guys, like I found this opportunity, I have to take it, and it was like heartbreaking. There's one guy that was in that band that I I haven't talked to, I haven't talked to since. I definitely want to ask you about being married to your high school sweetheart, and you know, sort of the pros and cons of making that work, and obviously getting married at a very young age, and here it's it's lasted for a number of years. As cheesy as this sounds, when it comes to my marriage being successful, it, all glory to God. The fact is, is like, you know, my wife was a believer from a young age and then got connected with my family and, and grew even more in her faith after that. And so by the time we had gotten married, like even at 18, we knew that God had to be the center of our relationship, that no matter what, no matter how I felt or how she felt in the situation, we had to look at scripture and say, well, this is what God says. So this is truth. That's the foundation of our marriage. Uh, and that is why we are still together and why we are happy. But I would say that there's a lot of other aspects to it. Like, you know, check this out, man. I mean, the first time that we ever lived outside of our parents' houses at 18 years old was because we got married. So we got an apartment together. So, I mean, we, we never lived on our own. We never had other roommates that we had gotten adjusted to. And we had never kind of, we never got into our groove without each other. You know what I mean? Like, I think so many people experience so much of life before they get married. So then you become one with someone else and it just feels there's so much tension there because you're like, well, this is how I do things. Well, no, this is how I do things. And that that simply was never the case for us. Every every opportunity that we had to grow, we chose to grow together. And everything that we learned about, we learned together. We've always been on the same page with our relationship with God because we've done it together. You know, and and I mean that that's not possible for so many people. So a lot of people find true love at, at 40 years old and, and things like that. And, you know, I mean, you just have to, I guess the truth is I, I don't have a lot of good advice be, because all I know is my situation. You know what I mean? But, 
but it, when it comes to I, I think the one bit of good advice that I've gotten that I'll give to to people forever is that you always have to choose discomfort over resentment. If you are frustrated or about something or if something kind of cut deep and you don't talk about it and you just kind of let it fester, eventually it grows into this like giant problem that if it would have been addressed from the start could have been eliminated. Um, so it's in those moments where you are you want to have that conver- you, you want to have that tough conversation, but you choose not to because you don't want it to be in an uncomfortable situation. You'll kind of do whatever to, to avoid confrontation. You have to stand up and say, listen, last night you said this thing and I didn't say anything about it, but it crushed me. And, 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 and you, you, you attack those things from the root before they can become something bigger. And if you choose the discomfort of having those conversations instead of living in resentment and having all of these hidden, you know, uh, wounds, then then you can heal together and you can learn together. So much of what I've done that's hurt Brittany, I was unaware of when I did it. And so much of what she was doing that had hurt me, she was unaware of when she was doing it. And the only times that we've ever had these explosive arguments has become, it's been because of things that we've not addressed from the start. So dude, we'll, I mean, we'll be driving home from a party, you know, these days and, and um, I'll be like, hey, when you made that comment about this or that, like it, it, it embarrassed me and it made me feel really inadequate or it made me feel really uncomfortable. And she'll be like, Oh, I had no idea. Or, you know, we'll be out and about and I'll say something and she'll be like, babe, I know you probably didn't realize it, but you sounded really cocky and you sounded really arrogant. And in in that moment, it's not like you're just instantly like, Oh, okay, well I'll never do that. You get kind of frustrated. Like what? Like, no way. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean that. Like, all my friends, they know me. They they know I didn't mean it like that. But then you let it set in and you realize, you know what? Maybe I, I was acting like a jerk and I didn't even realize it. And you have these conversations that are tough in the moment, but you, you it's in those tough moments that you grow together even more and you get even stronger. And so, you know, that choosing discomfort over resentment, that would be no matter when you meet or how long you've been married or whatever, that's advice I would say, you know, take, take with you to, to you know, forever. Uh, other than that, it's just, it's been that we've really had an incredible opportunity to grow together. I think even when you're, when you're, when you're married, a lot of people that get married at a young age, like you figure out that you want to chase this other career, you want to chase this other opportunity and that person's not on board with it. And and you start to grow apart, you know, like when, when I wanted to move to Dallas, my wife picked up and, and we moved to Dallas. And then when we lived in Atlanta, and had gotten settled in there, she got an opportunity to go back and live in and to work in Seattle and work in a buying office for Nordstrom. And so we packed up and we moved because of her. So there was opportunities where she would move for me and there's opportunities where I would move for her, but we always came together to figure out how to make it happen. So neither of our dreams were being sacrificed. And there's seasons where where her dreams had to be sacrificed for mine and seasons where my comfortability had to be sacrificed for hers and things like that, you know, but we've always made it work. Uh, I think that a really common phrase is marriage is hard work. And I think that that's true. But I think that if you're truly in love and you genuinely, if, if you feel lucky to have somebody, then that hard work doesn't feel like hard work. It's just something that you do. And there's never been a day that I've been married to Brittany that I haven't thought to myself, she's way out of my league. She's way too good for me. And I mean, like, dude, people people say it all the time. Like, how did she end up with you? And I'm like, dude, by the grace of God. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a scrawny ginger from from Spokane, Washington, but I got I married this like supermodel, right? So it's like, 
it's it's just been by the by the grace of God. And and you know what? It's crazy, dude. Like she feels the same way about me. It's like she feels so lucky to have me. She loves to be loved the way that I like to love. I think that's such a big part of it. I love so deeply, and I'm kind of an emotional guy, and I like to I like to tell her constantly how much I love her. And when we're driving down the road, listening to the radio, I'll sing along to the melody of whatever song is on, but I'll write different lyrics that are like about her or whatever. You know what I mean? I think a lot of girls might feel smothered or might be like, I need my space or, or that's too much for me. Like I need, I need you to, to back off a little bit, but she loves to be loved the way that I love. And that's another huge part of, of the success of our marriage. So I think you've hit upon something very profound where you're talking about, you know, the two of you met, very young and got married very young. Uh, but as you've grown and evolved as human beings, you've really worked to do that together as a couple and to be supportive of each other. And, you know, because I think one of the narratives that we often encounter, particularly when people are looking at the evangelical Christian community, you know, we tend to think in terms of, oh, well, premarital sex is against the rules and kids are so pushed towards abstinence that they get married at 18 just so they can have sex and then a year or two later uh, these kids figure out that they don't even like each other or they don't even like themselves or they they haven't gotten to know each other or, or they evolve into these different people and i think you know for you and Brittany, you are representative of this kind of counter narrative of a different alternative where uh, you know two people can grow and change and evolve together i mean Certainly in other cultures and other points of human history, people have gotten married at all, all kinds of different ages for better or for worse and for different reasons. And, you know, of course, it it used to be till death to us part just meant like, you know, you were going to die when you were like 30 anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think um, hearing your perspective is is definitely interesting and one that we don't hear often enough. Obviously, like the sex thing, growing up in a Christian family and everything like that, like Dude, of course, I mean, we were 18. We were so excited to, you know, bone down every night. You know what I mean? But, um, but the, but the fact is, is like, we wanted so much more than that. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. So I highly encourage anybody that's like, you know, coming from a, a Christian background and, and obviously you want to honor that, that part of, of your faith and, and not enter into a sexual relationship until you get married. Like, don't get married for that. No matter how horny you might be, like, don't, don't get married for that. Um, Brittany and I were so excited about every aspect of marriage. We are so excited to do life together and to try to avoid a lot of the mistakes that we saw our parents make. Her parents were divorced. Her mom's been divorced, um, you know, and like like twice and, and has, um, you know, we've, we've seen, we saw so much of what not to do. And we, so we wanted, we wanted to do it right. And, um, but man, we, we just wanted to explore and, and to learn and to grow together. That was so important to us. And if you don't see that, I would say, you know, with the person that you're with, then don't, don't get married. <laughs> don't, don't, don't commit to a lifetime together. Um, you know, and, but another thing is like, we got married at 18, but when you think about it, man, like we dated for like four years before we got married. It's like, you know, we dated all through high school. So how, how, how often does someone get married at 18 having already known someone and dated them for that long before that, you know? So, um, I mean, Brittany is so much the only thing that I've ever known. You mentioned your struggles with anxiety and depression and even, you know, suicidal thoughts. And I want, I want to get into with you, uh, I'll phrase the question this way. 
you know, it sounds like with great parents, you had this strong foundation, this uh, faith-based home and these morals and values. And, you know, you came up in this Christian music scene and you've uh, married to your childhood sweetheart. And, you know, you find yourself singing for Memphis Mayfire and playing the main stage and warp tour and seeing your face on magazine covers and, and more importantly, having, you know, kids come up to you all the time and tell you how meaningful your music has been for them or how you've helped them through a hard time. So how does this person, how do you, it's somebody who from the outside looking in appears to have it all, so to speak, how do you end up depressed and how do you end up suicidal? Man, I think that a lot of times um, people that struggle with it the worst are people that from the outside you would never think it was happening to, you know, because I think the anxiety is kind of like an alarm. Um, it's like your body's way of telling you, hey, something is unaddressed. Something needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, the alarm doesn't tell you what needs to be addressed. So it's so intensely scary and it's um, – it's paralyzing. So, I mean, like, dude, I'll put it this way. There's a lot of different things that, that came together to, for, for that, for that to happen to me at that point in my life. Um, but it took two years of fighting it and trying to learn about it to, to get past it. I would say that these days I'm 90% anxiety free and a hundred percent depression free, but it's because I, I would stop at nothing to figure out why it was happening to me. Dude, even in my own life, I was like, man, I was like, I have everything that I want. What is happening? Like, you don't hear about that from people. You don't hear about these people that, that quote unquote, have it all together that are struggling with this, you know? Um, But I, I didn't realize I had so many things that were unaddressed in my life. So this is how it all started. Um, I was on tour and I flew to, um, I flew to uh, Orlando on a day off to track a guest vocal for a Sleeping with Sirens record for that song, Congratulations. And um, I didn't get much sleep the night that we did it. We stayed up all night um, just hanging out. And I love Cameron Mizell, who I work with for everything. He's like one of my favorite people in the entire world. So when I see him, we go hard. We just hang and, and talk for hours. Um, so I woke up the next morning, and I've never really liked flying. I, I've never really enjoyed flying. It always makes me kind of nervous, but never had it caused like full on panic or anything like that. And um, so I was flying the, the the tour was in like Pensacola and I was tracking this guest vocal in Orlando. I flew like a 737 to Orlando, but on the way back, I woke up, I was tired, I was sleep deprived. And at that point in my life, I was eating really poorly and taking, I was taking really bad care of my body on tour. Um, and so I got onto that flight. I got I I, I kind of made a joke about it. I was walking out on the runway because there was no like the plane was so small that they didn't have one of the things that you like walk down to get onto the plane. It was like you actually had to go outside at the airport to walk up the stairs. And I took a little video of it uh, of the airplane before I got on and I sent it to my boys and I was like, "Hey guys, pray for me. I'm about to get on this pea shooter." You know, um and I got on it was like a, you know, 10 or 12 seater, just like a tiny little prop plane. And we took off, and this insane storm was in the sky. This, like, I can't even believe that planes were allowed to fly that day. And we were – it started out with, like, some pretty bad turbulence, and so I got kind of nervous. 
And then the plane started to be violently thrown from left to right. And it felt like there was no possible way that the pilots could have control. The flight attendant was grabbing, holding onto the ceiling, screaming like, Lord, save us. I remember not knowing what Xanax was, having heard of what it could do. And I was like wanting to ask anyone around me, do you guys have, does anyone have any Xanax? I feel like I'm about to die. I think we're about to die. If this is how we're going to go out, I don't want to feel like I feel right now. I, but I didn't. I, I, it was just, it, it's so hard to explain. It was such an intense moment. It was the first time in my life I ever had felt like I was going to die. And I'm not sure if it was just the situation of how scary it was, or it was that my body had put myself into it, into like fight or flight mode, which like I said, it's something I'd never experienced in my entire life. That feeling of being in fight or flight where you are, your body is basically preparing to die. And so it was this crazy feeling, and all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, the plane lands, but I can't – But my body won't let me get out of that moment. I'm still in that moment. I'm still 30,000 feet up being thrown around thinking I'm going to die, and I'm walking off the runway, and I'm thinking, what's up with my body? I was like, am I dizzy, or am I like – something's wrong here, and I get – the bus comes and picks me up at the airport. And you feel like you're going to pass out, but you don't pass out. I, yeah, I felt like I was going to pass out. I was really shaky, and I thought that landing would give me so much relief, but it didn't. And so anyways, I get back to the bus, and I'm like, man, that was wild. You know, I feel really anxious all day, and I feel really anxious for like the next couple days. It feels like I never got off the plane. Um, and then there was one day, just a few days later, I woke up. And we were in New Jersey, and we were sitting outside the venue, and I put, I had a cup of potato soup, and I was watching TV in the front lounge of the bus. And all of a sudden, I was certain that I that we were gonna die. It felt like a, it felt like a plane was about to crash through the window in the bus. It was like my body was saying, "Get out of the situation that you're in right now. You're about to die." And so, and I got up and I looked around at everyone. I was like, "Is everyone okay?" Like, and everyone's just watching TV. Like, yeah, what's wrong with you? And I was like, something really bad is happening. Something really bad is about to happen. And my heart is racing, and it's like – but it came out of nowhere. And so I was like, what is this? So I go into the venue, and I sit in the bathroom, and I try to gather myself, and I look in the mirror, and I remember looking at myself and hearing a voice say, you're worthless. End it. And I was like, whoa. Like I'd heard so much my whole life about like demon possession and like spiritual warfare, and I'm thinking that's – I'm I'm thinking about committing suicide. I was just eating soup 20 minutes ago. I have no idea what's going on. So um, I come out and I start to think that I'm actually having a full-on heart attack. So Corey, my bass player, he's like such a gentle giant, and he like wraps his arms around me and he's like, "What do you want?" And I was like, "Take me to the hospital." So the runner takes me to the hospital, and right as we get into the door of the hospital, and the doctor comes up to greet me, all of those feelings flush away, and my body starts to tingle and it and it starts to leave me, and I'm thinking. I don't know what that was, but I – the doctor's like, listen, you had a panic attack. And I was like, why would I have a panic attack? I'm fine. Like, it, you know, like I, I, I'm not the kind of person that has panic attacks. Like I get on stage in front of a couple thousand people every night, and like I'm, I don't have stage fright. I, I can – that just – that's not – I'm not the person that that happens to. Having been so uneducated on anxiety and depression, I had no idea why it would affect me. So um, the guy gives me like a, 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 a bottle of Xanax pills. And I go back to the bus and I take one, but I, it didn't do anything to me. I didn't. I think it was a really small dosage. I didn't feel any different. Um, and so, 
having been so terrified of that feeling, I, it's the only thing that I could think about. It's, it, it, it never left my, my, my brain. I was, I would wake up in the middle of the night in full on sweat, just covered in sweat and wondering what's going on every morning. I'd wake up. I, all I could think about was, am I going to randomly lose my mind and kill myself? Or am I going to die of a heart attack? It was like, I was being consumed by fear for the first time in my life. I had all these feelings and I had no idea where they come, where they were coming from. So Corey would take me out and he would take me on walks. Um, to, to try to get my mind off of it. But but that feeling, that like gut-wrenching feeling of like, it's almost like someone just told you that that your mom or dad died. It's that feeling when, that you get when when you when you, when someone gives you that news, but it never went away. Dude, I'm talking two years of of that. And I just kept trying to figure it out. I was watching T I was living in Seattle. I was watching TV with my wife and this commercial came on. It's like, are you living with anxiety? And all of a sudden I'm like sucked in. I'm like, yes, yes, I am. They're like, order, order our CD set for $135.99. And we believe that you can, you know, get rid of this. So I was like, sign me up. So I called, I ordered it. I was like, can you overnight it? You know? Um, and I go and I went out and I would go on long drives and I would listen to these CDs. And as much as it wasn't as sweet as they said it was, I'll tell you what, the first time that I ever felt any relief at all was when I was listening to those CDs. And what it was, was a, a microphone in the middle of the room and a bunch of people sitting in a circle talking about what it's like to have a panic attack and what it's like to feel anxious and have anxiety day to day. Someone was like, I sometimes I'll think about killing my daughter. Just these like absurd, terrible thoughts that you would never think about that would never cross your mind. And, and, or like, sometimes I think about my heart stopping or I'm standing on a rooftop and I should be enjoying the view and I'm not a suicidal person, but all I can think about is jumping off. And when somebody else would talk about those thoughts that were going through my head, it would bring me relief because I started to feel like I wasn't alone. I was living in Seattle and it, where there's a massive uh, homeless population, but also a massive uh, mentally ill homeless population. So, so many of these guys would be walking around in the streets. I'd live downtown and these guys would be walking around the streets, like punching themselves in the head, stuff like that. And I would, and I would look at them and I'd say, that's what I'm on my way to. I'm losing my mind because I can't control my own thoughts or emotions or feelings. And I always feel like I'm going to die. And I feel like, you know, so, um, it, it, it was terrible. And, and when I went to city church, I remember feeling so much relief from Judah's preaching because I felt so comforted by it. But at the same time, my head was, I was thinking about the ceiling collapsing in the church. That's where my, that's where my brain was taking me. I was, I was trying to enjoy this sermon, but all I could think about was the worst possible thing that could happen. That's what anxiety does to you. You know, so like if you get like a little bit of a headache, oh, I have a brain aneurysm. Or if, if your heart skips a beat from a normal, normal heart palpitation, it's like, that's it. I got to go to the doctor. I'm having a heart attack. You know, whereas before I started experiencing all these things, I, I was, I was unafraid of everything. I was so carefree and careless. Um, so fast forward, um, the depression had gotten to the point where I felt like I was, if I had one negative thought, I would spiral into this deep, dark place that I couldn't get out of for days. And, and you hear people talk about that stuff, but unless you experience it, you really have no idea what it's like, because if you don't know where it's coming from exactly, then and you can't pinpoint it. Then you're just living in this terrible spot without any way to get out. And it's awful. And so my sister's a therapist. She's incredible. Um, fast forward to the time when we were in the studio working on Unconditional, most of which I wrote and recorded in the studio, like just wrote on the spot in the studio and, and tracked it. 
And that was one of the darkest times. I was living in a hotel by myself in Phoenix while we were doing this record. And I would be at the studio all day exhausted because when I got back to the hotel, I would sit there and I would lay in bed and I would shake and I would wake up in the middle of the night and I felt like I could see this like dark demonic figure like standing over my body. Um, And so I would write about anxiety and depression, but I also wrote about this like newfound hope that I was finding in my relationship with Jesus. And that was God's not causing these things to happen in your life, Matthew. He's allowing it to happen so that you can grow closer to him than ever before. And so I I trusted in God in those moments. I was angry with God because I was like, why are you allowing all of this to happen? I know for a fact you are God. I know that you can take this away. Why are you allowing that to happen? Um, And I believe now, looking back on it, the answer was um, because so many other people deal with it. And he was saying, Matthew, I'm going to use you to bring comfort to people who are going through this. I'm going to use you to influence people that are struggling with this to to be a beacon of hope for people that feel like there's no hope. And also as an opportunity for you to to have to to feel so hopeless that you reach out for me in a whole new way so that I can show you how incredible it is to have a really a one-on-one genuine relationship with me, your creator. Um so um it, it just you know, unreal. Um, so I started um, I, my whole life. I, like my dad was really against like uh, medication. His whole idea was like, if you pray about it, God will handle it kind of thing. You know, he's like very old school kind of thing. Um, so I was always scared of taking medication for anxiety or depression, you know, but my sister being, she's this incredible woman. She's like a, has this amazing, um, counseling center here in Franklin, Tennessee. And I would call her every day and she would take time away from work to do these like relaxation techniques with me to try to to get me in a better space before I went in and recorded. And she was like, Matthew, she's like, I want you to realize that it's okay to take medication to kind of level yourself out while you're working through all these issues. And I was at the point where I was like, I have to do something because everything that I've done so far hasn't taken it away completely. I was like, okay, so she wanted me to take Zoloft, get on Zoloft, and for a year, it's like this this medication you take for a year for depression, but it also helps with anxiety. And I was so anti it, you know, I was like, I'm scared of it, I don't want to do it. Um, and so I, I met with this, this this lady that works at Refuge, where where Amy works, or Amy's counseling center, and she was talk about the medication and like what it can do for you, some of the side effects, you know, blah blah. blah. And she's like, it'll take about two to three, maybe even four weeks before it kicks in. You have to get your body used to it. Um, I was like, okay, cool. So I took it with me to Phoenix when I was recording and I was like, okay, I'm gonna start taking this. And I did. And dude, I swear to you, it was like two days. And I, before I started to feel like a normal, I could, it's almost, I like to describe it like this. I could feel the sun on my arm. When I was outside, I would put my arm out and I could feel the warmth of the sun. When, when you're in those bouts of depression, and anxiety, nothing that po- ever bring you joy can bring you joy anymore. It's like you're completely hopeless. Even though you're surrounded by things that are full of hope, you feel so empty and so hopeless. And so when I noticed that the medication was working when I started to feel like there was some sort of joy kind of cr- peeking through the crack in the door. And I was like, wow. So I called Amy and I told her, and man, I took it for a year and it really did. It felt like it it, it balanced me out. And, and so that like the work that I was having to put in to try to overcome anxiety and get through it and learn about it so I didn't have to be scared about it anymore, it was so much more possible for me to do that work. It never made me feel like overly happy 
or high or anything like that. It made me feel like a normal person. And I think that that's exactly what that medication was meant for. And you're supposed to take it for a year or so and, and then wean off of it. At the one year mark, I called the lady that like prescribed it to me or whatever. And I was like, I'm, I know for a fact I'm good. I don't need it. Um, and, and I, and I tossed the bottle and I was done at my one year mark. And so I'm so thankful for, for medication, um, in, in that season of my life. But in, in, you know, while I was on the medication, I was also doing a lot of therapy. I did this therapy called EMDR therapy, which is a therapy that was developed for soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, um, basically what you do is you hold these buzzers in your hand that go left and right. And you, um, look at a, a dot on a screen that goes left and right. And what you're trying to do is recreate bilateral eye movement that happens rapid bilateral eye movement eye movement that happens while you're asleep at night so when you're sleeping at night your eyes are going back and forth left and right really quickly and that actual physical motion is moving situations that have happened from your frontal lobe which is where you experience things and feel things to um, a different part of your brain where you can remember them but you don't have to feel the feelings that are associated with them on a daily basis so i went back to that flight that first flight, which was like the, the, my first experience with, I think, panic and, and anxiety. And I talked about being in that moment while I was using these buzzers to tr try to move that memory to another part of my head. So I know it sounds all like, it sounds weird, right? If you haven't done it, but I swear I can think about that flight now and I, my, my palms don't get sweaty anymore. It's, it's like a miracle, dude. Um, I can think about painful memories you know, traumatic like family experiences and stuff from when I was really young that I had worked through an EMDR and, and they don't cause anxiety for me anymore. It, when I think about it, is it painful? Absolutely, because it happened, but but it's not, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like I'm in that situation right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, there are a lot of unfortunate misconceptions out there and a lack of awareness about what a lot of these terms that we hear so often actually mean. You know, case in point, you'll hear people say, Oh my gosh, I'm so OCD. I'm, I'm always washing my hands or, you know, I like to have everything clean or I, I make sure all my albums are alphabetized. And that's not what obsessive compulsive disorder is. I mean, certainly those are some symptoms that we hear associated with it, but obsessions and compulsions are a completely whole different ball game than, you know, I mean, you could meet someone who suffers from OCD who might have the messiest car you've ever seen. And I think some of the misconceptions about panic disorder and anxiety are very similar. You know, you'll hear someone say, oh, I, I had a panic attack or I almost had a panic attack. And I think there's a generally a, a lack of understanding about what that means unless you've actually suffered from a true panic attack. You know, as, as you articulated it so well, it's uh, panic attack is like an alarm where your your body your mind is telling you that there's something unaddressed that needs to be dealt with that isn't being dealt with you know case in point speaking from my own experience i've had a handful of panic attacks and one of them in particular you know i, I wasn't on a turbulent flight you know there wasn't something crazy going on i was sitting in a barber chair getting my hair cut which is one of my favorite things to do and suddenly I was just overcome by these competing urges to either stand up out of the chair and beat the crap out of my barber or stand up out of my chair, run outside and run as far down the street as I could possibly get. And, you know, without understanding it at the time, that's fight or flight. 
you know, and when I finally, you know, late in life as an, as an adult sought help and went to therapy for the first time, the doctor explained to me very simply, yeah, that's fight or flight. That's your actual fight or flight response. And I have to say, as someone who suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder and panic and anxiety, just going and finally seeking some help and getting just a minimal amount of treatment, just like you were saying, it's almost impossible to describe how great it feels to wake up in the morning and feel like a normal person. I mean, I think therapy is for everybody. I think that, you know, me, the media and, and I guess like TV and movies have made therapy out to be this thing that's only for people that are crazy or, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's not the case at all. I've never met a single person in my life. Everyone can use it. Everyone can use it. And and, I, and that goes back to what I was saying when I was younger. I heard so much about demonic activity and demon possession and stuff like that. And I do believe that demonic activity is real. I do believe that Satan is real. But through all of this, what I learned is that like those those feelings that felt like that wasn't that. You know, I don't believe that Satan is omnipresent. I don't think that, you know, if there's one person in the world that he could attack, it was me at that moment. I don't believe that what I have struggled with was demonic activity. I think it feels like that in the moment. But what I struggled with was simply the human body is imperfect. And can Satan use that, you know, in his favor? Absolutely. To make you feel like God doesn't exist, to make you feel like God isn't there, that he doesn't care about you. Absolutely. But what was what I was experiencing demonic activity? No, I think it was a simple imbalance. There was that had to do with my body and with my brain, unaddressed issues from that flight and from my childhood, um, things that, that I had no idea were causing me to feel like an inadequate husband and like an inadequate front man that when I only when I did therapy and I dug back into that really deep and through EMDR therapy was I able to pinpoint those things and it was like my brain had been waiting 25 years to connect these dots and finally those dots were connected and it no, no longer did I have to live day to day with the symptoms of these issues that had never been addressed and I hated it so much. I've been such a carefree person and such a lighthearted person my whole life that when these things started to attack me, I knew, I remembered clearly what it was like to be happy. I remembered that there was something greater to life that to fight for. And that's why I so ruthlessly fought for to, to get back to that point. And what I always described it as like, I just want to get back to how I felt. But what I didn't realize was happening is that I eventually I would get back to that peace that I had. I would get back to that piece with a whole new understanding of something that people, millions and millions of people struggle with on a day-to-day basis. I, I could always, I guess, be empathetic for people with anxiety and depression, but I could never be sim- I could never truly be sympathetic for those people. And now I think that God's using me so much in the music scene and and with you know with our fans and everything to say, hey, ask who who's struggled with that so much in the room, you know, I'll raise my hand every time I'll talk to you about it. I know exactly what you're going through. And I also know that it's possible to get to the other side of it. If you fight it, if you go through the right steps to address whatever it is your body's telling you needs to be addressed, there is a way to get through it. And you will come out on the other side with all of these tools in your belt of how to battle it. If it, if it comes back, you know, like I'll be driving down the road sometimes 
And for whatever reason, driving has always made me feel just a little anxious, but not like panic anxious. And I'll feel that feeling coming on. And, and all these tools and that I learned about in, in therapy, I'll be able to bring myself out of that that fake moment back into reality. Like, hey, whatever it is that you're worried about is either something that could happen in the future or something that could happen in the or that did happen in the past, but not actually what is happening in the moment. And I'm able to bring myself back into the moment and back into reality. And because I'm not scared of those feelings of anxiety, because I know that it's not going to kill me, and because of how much I learned about anxiety and 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 how it feels like your body is shutting down, it's attacking your body, but 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 that you ultimately do have control over it. When you learn not to be afraid of it, it's almost like a bully that just doesn't come back. It's like a bully that'll come up to you and be like, hey man, like give me your lunch money. And you're like, no, you're just a bully. And then it's like, okay, whatever. And it walks away. No, it's like the end of the first, the nightmare on Elm street movie where Nancy tells Freddie, I, I take all the power away that I gave to you and turns her back on him and it disappears. Exactly. You think it was going to get away from me. I know you too well now, Freddie. You die. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. I want my mother and friends again. What? I take back every bit of energy I gave you. Exactly. And, and if you were to tell me that, when I was having in the thick of all my panic attacks and everything, I'd be like, you know what? Screw you. You obviously didn't feel what I'm feeling right now because this is so paralyzing that it could not, yours could not have ever been as bad as mine. It took a couple years for me of working through it and learning it and getting to know anxiety as if it was someone that I was a roommate, as if it was an annoying roommate. And, and, and I, and, and so that when it came on, I knew that it was not something to be afraid of. So much of, of panic is like an instant, an instant rush of anxiety that that you feed into because you're so scared of that feeling that you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, something terrible is happening to me. And then you make it so much worse in that moment. If you know how to say, I'm hey, listen, I'm I'm not afraid of you. You know, like feel free, come give me a panic attack. I'm just gonna continue about my day because I know that you're you can't you can't hurt me. It just fizzles out. It goes away. And um I want to apologize to any listeners that might take offense to that because they might have worked so hard to get through it and haven't quite found how to get through it yet. But I also want to encourage you by saying, I promise you, I experienced it to the point where I thought about jumping off the roof at my apartment complex in downtown Seattle. And these days, I I have weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks where I go without even feeling a symptom of anxiety. I promise you that relief is real and that hope is real. And, and, and that if, if you, you know, if you take the right steps that you can, that you can beat it, that you can beat it. I think you've really hit upon something in regard to mindfulness and, and more specifically not being led around by residual feelings or anxieties or, uh, you know, unresolved complications, emotional complications from earlier in your life. And I think that's something that, you know, the ability to exist here in, you know, the MXPX album title, the ever passing moment, to be able to exist here in this moment versus existing in the past or worrying about the future 
think that's at the heart of what a lot of spiritual practices throughout the ages are really aiming at, you know, really aiming toward, whether it's through meditation, prayer, um, you know, Buddhism, uh, Gnostic mysticism, a lot of these different faith traditions, really, that's a, a central component is the ability to exist in the here and now. I know in my case, and I'm coming to understand there's a, a lot more people out there who are like this, I dealt with things, you know, traumas from early in childhood and things like that, dealing with them. I compartmentalized and bottled up and stuffed away a lot of feelings that I wasn't really capable of handling to the point where I became this adult that oftentimes worried that I was unable to feel, you know, the appropriate feelings in certain situations. And one of the greatest things that I learned through this whole experience of getting treatment and getting help is that, you know, it wasn't that I don't have certain feelings. It's that at a crucial time in life where you're developing the tools on how to process those kind of feelings, I was kind of robbed of that chance. So part of the work that's been happening in my adult life now is just developing those tools to be able to access everything that I need to that's inside to deal with everything properly and be a more, more uh, whole person who can exist in all the different extremes uh, without feeling like I'm driving myself crazy. And that's awesome. I, I hope, dude. And I think that, like I said earlier, I think that that is the reason that God allowed me to experience these things. You know, I think that he allows so many people to experience so many different things so that so that we can help other people. And it's like, it's so hard to look back and say like, man, I'm so thankful for that time when I was having panic attacks and struggling. It's like, it, it's impossible to say I'm thankful for that. Or if someone was like, hey man, if you could ever relive that, would you do it? Like, I'd probably say no, you know what I mean? But but the reality of it is, is, is that I can't count the number of people in my life that I never knew were struggling with it that have come to me because they know I was struggling with it to talk about their own and how much peace I've been able to offer them by just telling them, hey man, like you're sitting there on the couch and all of a sudden you have this great, this ludicrous thought. I've been there too. You, you feel your heart skip a beat and you think you're having a heart attack. You're not. You, you know, like th those things and that you can bring so much peace to someone just by them knowing that they're not alone. And listen, I think that this light I hold, the new Memphis record, I think that's our best record yet, definitely. Like, it's a major step forward for the band, but I think that Unconditional will for always be my favorite Memphis Mayfire record because it was the most stripped-down, raw, honest version of myself that I've ever been able to offer to the world, and it was so intimidating to be that person on that record. But I think the reward was so tenfold to see how many people were affected by it and empowered by it that I think that, that that record is probably my greatest accomplishment. I just, I, I encourage anybody that, that, like I said before, that's living in it, that I think that when you, you can read online forums that say like, hey, anxiety is a disorder that a lot of people struggle with and a lot of times it never goes away. And I refused to believe that. I could not believe that there was no way to get back to that person that I was before it all started happening. And so I fought until I figured it out, until God gave me the tools and through therapy, I learned all these things to be able to, eliminate it from my life i promise you it's possible and, and there's hope that hope is real i want to be i want to be the person that tells people that that is a living example of that i have to say maddie you know i'm someone who i've 
conducted a lot of interviews over the years. I've, you know, get up on stage and moderate panels and Q and A's. And I've, you know, I've been on television on MSNBC and, you know, whatever, just to play in a band and get up and sing and hold a microphone and, and talk at people. And, I, and I've long intended to launch not only this podcast, but a series of podcasts. And yet I never would have imagined that I would just dive right into an episode one and talk about my own struggles with anxiety and OCD and, uh, you know, all of these, these issues, mindfulness. And I have to say that in getting to know you over the last few years and seeing how open you've been about your own struggles, it's encouraged me to be that much more uh, truthful and transparent and outspoken about mine in hopes that in the way that you've encouraged me, I can hopefully encourage someone else. Man, that is so good. I'm so, I mean, praise God is, is, is really all that I can say. You know what I mean? Because that there's no difference in, in me than anybody else that struggles with it besides the platform that God's given me to, to share it. And that's why I'm thankful. So, yeah, man. You know, when you talk about giving the glory to God, I think people listening to this, you know, skeptics, atheists, agnostics, Christians, people of all different faith walks, a lot of people hear something like that and it's a turnoff because it sounds like faith healing or speaking in tongues or, you know, snake handling. But I think what that reductive view neglects, you know, when I when I listen to you talk about your journey, I think more about that parable of, you know, there's a guy drowning and a boat comes by and says, hey, you know, hop on a board. And the guy says, no, no, I'm I have faith. I believe in God. God's going to save me. I'm, I'm praying to God. God save me. The boat leaves and then a helicopter comes by and lowers a rope and he, you know, swats it away and says, no, 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 I'm I'm praying to the Lord. The Lord's going to save me from drowning. And the helicopter's like, all right, and they leave. And the guy drowns and he gets to heaven and he says, Lord, uh, why didn't you save me? I was drowning and I was I was begging you for help. And God's like, dude, what do you mean? I, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> so good, man. Yeah. Yep. Your boat or your helicopter may have been therapy and your sister, your bass player. You're just looking at it through this lens that this was divined by a creator or, you know, a higher being that has uh, provided you with these tools, given you these tools to put in your tool belt to deal with these issues, that it was part of a larger plan of relationship that it's by design. By design. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, Maddie. Thank you. I, I, I could, this is something that I could talk about for days. So I think maybe we need to do a, a round two. Oh, you are more than welcome to come back anytime. And I would love to have you on board and, and check in with you as I continue to have these conversations with people who, you know, people who've experienced so much or struggled with a lot of things or come through these crazy sort of stories and develop some kind of faith or belief in being seen or unseen or unbelief, some type of framework, some type of perspective on life's bigger questions that gets them through the day. Well, uh, Ryan, you, you, you've been such a huge blessing in my life in, in so many ways. You're one of those people that, that I thank God for on a daily basis because I never 
would have thought like, oh, this guy that I meet in this situation is going to be such a huge part of my life in all of these different areas. I mean, when you think about it, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have even signed this solo record deal that I just signed because you you made the connection. Um, if it wasn't for you, people wouldn't probably have as much respect for the project because you make the bios sound so good <laughs> when it comes to me. And I mean, it, it's insane. I mean, God put you in li my life to, to be able to explain some of the worst decisions I've ever made through AP Magazine, you know, um, when, when I had said things in, a, in, a, in the wrong way and I had to explain myself to the world, God put you in that situation to interview me for that. I, I'm, I'm thankful for you on so many different levels. So thank you for letting me be the first person on your podcast. This is an honor. Well, the pleasure is certainly mine. And, you know, you've been a big blessing in my life as well. And case in point, specifically right now, uh, encouraging me by your example to open up about my own struggles with mental health and hopefully, you know, maybe listening to this conversation even will help someone else be a little bit more open, even if it's just with themselves about what they're going through and, and, you know, talk about it with somebody. Oh, talking about it is so, is so important. And God created us to communicate. I believe that God created us to, to communicate and to get things out and not to, to hold things in. And so much of the healing that needs to happen happens when you talk about it, whether it be with a therapist or a friend. And so, yeah. Anyways, I, if you don't stop me, I'm going to talk for another hour. So, well, thank you again so much. And shout out to your mom for being our cameo supporting guest star. Love it. Say hi, mom. Hi. <laughs> you can find Maddie Mullins on social media at Maddie Mullins on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out at On Point Pomade on various social channels to check out Maddie's cool hair product company. Maddie, I love you, man, and I'm I'm here for you anytime you need anything. Dude, I love you too, man. I hope we can talk again real soon. And as a final note, I'd like to encourage anyone who's struggling with some of the issues that Maddie and I talked about in this episode to check out AFSP.org. That's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and that's AFSP.org. This has been No Prize from God, Episode 1, and I have been Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out popcurse.com. Popcurse on Twitter and Instagram to keep up with all of the things that we will be doing going forward.